Shalom Aleichem, we're exploring the Sicha of Balak, Lakut Sicha's volume 18, Sicha number three. So, Zimri, the leader of the tribe of Shimon, is part of the frenzy of sin that's overtaking the Jewish people. And he takes this Midianite princess, Kuzvi, cohabitates with her publicly in front of Moses. And um, it's a terrible moment. And he challenges Moses. And Moses didn't know what to do. Moses froze. He didn't know the rule because there isn't a prescribed punishment for one that cohabitates with a non-Jewish woman. However, Pinchas walked up and said to Moses, didn't you teach us that that when someone cohabitates with a non-Jewish woman uh, in such a public way, in a way that's so, such a desecration of Hashem's name, those who are jealous for God's honor can take them down, no questions asked. Meaning if you take them to court, there's no ruling. But if you just take them down, that would be the right thing to do. So Moses turned to Pinchas and says, you know what, you're the one who read the letter. You should carry it out. Of course, Pinchas did it, and he was afforded uh, the status of Kohenhood. He becomes Elijah the prophet, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But part of the discussion, as discussed in the Oral Torah and the Talmud, is that he challenged Moses by saying, "Am I not allowed to be with this Midianite woman? But you married a Midianite woman." That's his challenge. As much as this is a great chutzpah, there must be some argument in it. And the Rebbe asked, "What argument could there be?" He's comparing Moses marrying a Midianite woman, A, pre-Sinai. He married her. This wasn't just some cohabitation. And now at Sinai, she converted with all the Jews. How is this compared saying, well, Moses, you married a Midianite woman, so can I cohabitate freely, publicly? I mean, what's the apples and apples? What's even his question? He's not going to ask a nonsensical question. Says the Rebbe. This is very creative on a scholarly level. There's got to be something wrong, so to speak, on some halachic level with what Moses did by marrying Zipporah that he can't even have an objection. Even though his motives were wrong, that's not the issue. But his argument has to carry somewhere. Otherwise, he wouldn't come. He's a leader of a tribe. He's not a fool. And he wouldn't put this argument forward. He would look stupid. So the rabbi presents a brilliant interpretation, very creative. It's brought down that Moses had the status of a Kohen. And a Kohen can't marry a convert. And the reason why a Kohen can't marry a convert is because Kohen can't marry somebody that's, that's in the environment of immorality. And the nations generally have the concept of immorality. And, and therefore, Zimri says, you want me not to be with the nations because of immorality? You violated that rule. Bottom line is you're a Kohen and you married a convert. So now Moses actually, at least in Zimri's argument, did something wrong. It's not all kosher. And therefore, he says, how could you complain with what I am doing? And the Rebbe has a lengthy discussion in, in the Sicha, parenthetically. Not parenthetically for the Sicha, but parenthetically for my brief uh, overview of the Sicha. What does it mean that it was a Kohen? How could Moses be a Kohen? We know that Aaron was the Kohen. So it's explained that Ace, one opinion is just for the seven days of when he uh, administered the service in the temple. And according to another opinion, he actually was a Kohen. The fact that the Kohen was given not for him, was given to Aaron, represented from his children and on, it went to Aaron. There's even a verse that says, Moses' children are called Levites. This is a punishment for him that he refused God's request to become Moses for seven days. God said, you know, I'll give it to Aaron. But Moses himself had the Kohen status. Whichever way you slice it, he was either a Kohen temporarily or permanently. And he's married to Zabara, convert. So Zimri does have some type of argument. So now the rabbi comes back and says, if so, Zimri's got an argument. What's the answer? And whatever that answer is, how come we didn't tell it to him? 
But what is the answer? So the Rebbe presents one answer, refutes it, so to speak, and then presents another answer. Each one of these are brilliant chidushim, novel approaches, but you got to know the whole Torah to come up with this. Answer number one, says the Rebbe, well, on a simple level, you could say, well, Moses divorced the power. So Zimri says, who are you? Tim? How did you marry to power? You were a Kohen marrying a convert? No longer. I divorced her right at Sinai. He didn't go home. And let's assume he didn't become a Kohen before Sinai. But the Rebbe refutes this. The Rebbe says, this can't be the reason why he left Sephora. Because Torah says clearly he left Sephora and in Rashi and in oral Torah because he became a prophet and God told him not to go home. He's got to live on a higher level. The only Jew, I guess, in history asked to live on that level. So therefore the reason is stated clearly and we even know it from the discussion in Torah with Eldon and Nemeda, the two who became prophets and Sephora whispered to Miriam, oh, I feel bad for their wives. Now they might separate from their wives because she assumed that if her husband left her because of prophecy, maybe they also will, even though that was not the case with other prophets. But we see clearly from the discussion that the separation of Moses from Sephora, the divorce, if you will, was not over the illegality of a Kohen versus marrying a convert, but only because of prophecy. It was a special ruling for him. But if, in fact, it was not legal to marry her because she's a convert, God shouldn't have to tell him a word. He legally should not be able to be married to her. And that's not addressed. So Zimri's argument is still there. You married her. You didn't divorce her. You divorced her later because of some prophetic issue. But you violated, so to speak, this Kohen convert issue. So who are you to talk? So the rabbi comes up with a second answer. And again, this is brilliant. I imagine those who are Torah scholars really get the brilliance of it. The rabbi comes along and says, well, the truth is Moses and Zipporah were married pre-Sinai. And once a marriage has begun, a marriage has begun, the halacha is it can continue even if it's a Kohen to a convert. Where do you get this from? Rebbe has to have a precedent. And there is no precedent of somebody who's married to a, com, to a, a convert and suddenly he becomes a Kohen, except in the case of Moses, because you don't become a Kohen. But in the case of Moses, that's what happened. He's married to Tzipporah, pre-Sinai. And then at Sinai, he became a Kohen or somewhere thereafter when the temple was put up. And the ruling is that once you are already married or betrothed even, which is the first step of marriage, which in those days was done in a separate time, the giving of the ring, today it's done together. Even if you didn't consummate the marriage, you can't consummate. It says the Rebbe, let me tell you the precedent. Let me tell you where I get this in Jewish law. Such a concept. Similar but different law. The high priest is not allowed to marry a widow. More than a regular Kohen who can't marry a divorcee, high priest can't even marry a widow. What happens if an ordinary priest, he's not a high priest, he's married to a widow, and then he's appointed high priest. Does he need to divorce this widow? And the answer is no, he does not. In fact, even if he is just engaged, betrothed, which means he gave her the ring, um, he's betrothed to uh, a widow, an ordinary Kohen, and now he's appointed high priest. He can consummate the marriage, not just the betrothal, but the actual kedushin, the nisuin, to, to live together as husband and wife. But the bottom line of it is, that what Torah is teaching us, that uh, the ruling against the high priest marrying a widow is only in the first instance. You're a high priest, you're going out and marrying her. Not good. 
But if you already married her, and now you're just continuing the marriage or consummating the marriage, it's not a problem. Based on that law, says the Rebbe, that's exactly what happened with Moses. And that's why Zimri's argument held no water. Because pre-Sinai, Moses married to Parah. And now he became a priest. After the fact, he doesn't have to divorce her on the account of her being a convert. Mm -mm. If he did divorce her, it was on the account of being a prophet, a whole different ballgame. On the account of, of, of her being a convert, he can keep her. Because again, the ruling is not to go and take such a relationship. But if the relationship has already been taken and you're just continuing it, consummating it, there isn't a problem. Very innovative on a halachic, on a legal level. And then the rabbi deals with it and says, what do you mean? But this was pre-Sinai. Moses married to Torah. When? While in Midjah, before the Torah was given. That was marriage. That was the legal definition of Kiddushim, what we call a Jewish marriage. And that marriage holds water on a, on a Torah level to the extent that now he can continue being married to her because he already began the marriage. That must have been some kind of, I don't know, maybe they went to the justice of the, of the clerk or whatever it is, to the local uh, town hall because there was no Torah yet comes along the Rebbe with another bombshell innovation. The Rebbe says, now, even pre-Sinai, the Jews had certain mitzvahs. And one of the mitzvahs that they had, which was in fact introduced by Amram, Moses' father, was the mitzvah of legal Torah marriage. As it says in chapter 2, verse 1 in Exodus, that a man from the house of Levi went and married the daughter of Levi, and the language of marriage used there is vayikach and tuk, which is the same language used later in the laws of marriage. Kiyikach ish isha, a man will take a wife, which is the Amram innovated the mitzvah of marriage. And therefore, even pre-Sinai, the Jews married halachically, so to speak. And therefore, Moses married to Parah halachically based on Amram's innovation. And therefore, he was able to keep her. And therefore, Zimri was wrong totally with this argument. Not only his motivation, his argument was wrong. This, this concept that Amram invented or introduced prophetically, the mitzvah of marriage, is fascinating because the Rebbe, with this explains an interesting statement in Maimonides and the laws of kings. Maimonides explains the evolution of Torah. And Adam was given six of the seven mitzvahs of Noah. Noah was given the seventh mitzvah of not leading from a, a limb of a live animal. And then Abraham came along and added some mitzvahs in Isaac and Jacob. Abraham added the mitzvah of circumcision and the morning prayer, shachras. Yitzchak, the mitzvah of tithing, meiser, and mincha, afternoon prayer. Yaakov, the mitzvah of uh, the sciatic nerve, and the evening prayer. And then Amram was given, Maimonides says, so it means prophetically. But he was, as the leader of the Jewish people, introduced mitz, additional mitzvahs. He doesn't say what. Says the Rebbe, what did Abram introduce? Did you ever wonder about it? I read this Rambam every single year in our study. I wonder, what did he introduce? I know what Abraham gave and Isaac and Jacob. What did Amram introduce? And the answer says the Rebbe is based on this discussion. The mitzvah of marriage, because it says in the Torah, he went and married and he took, that's the legal language of Torah for marriage, the daughter of Levi. And therefore, this is when he remarried Yechavid after he separated from her. And therefore, the, this explains Aram's contribution. And this explains why Moses was okay. He was in the right for marrying and remaining with Zipporah, even after he became a Kohen. The separation, if there was a separation or a divorce, was for other reasons. And therefore Zimri was drawn completely. So then the Rebbe says, if that's the case, why didn't Moshe give the answer to Zimri? And the Rebbe says, 
because this is debatable, meaning this is a halachic discussion, did Amram's marriage have a status of halachic marriage or was it just a social marriage? Moses says yes, someone else might say no. And therefore Moses is not going to argue his case because he's biased. Being that he's the one being attacked. If you're the one being attacked, never give an opinion. And therefore Moses was silent, even though he knew that he had an answer. And then on the other issue, what to do with what Zimri was doing, this disgusting act, this Moses temporarily forgot the law in order for Pinchas to take the glory and Pinchas went ahead and acted on it with his jealousness. But in terms of the accusation that Zimri made of the, the verbal accusation that Moses, had you married Tapara? Moses had an answer, but he didn't feel like it's his place to state it because he is a bias. Because it's an attack on him. Now, the Rebbe comes along and takes lessons from the Sicha. The Rebbe says, not every question deserves an answer. Even though Zimri's question was a good question. We just discussed it, a whole halachic discussion, and this is very general, and the details and the sicha and the footnotes is a lot. Zimri seemed to be a brilliant Torah scholar. He had a good argument. Doesn't matter, he's coming from a terrible place. He has no interest in finding out the truth. You know, just like to tell a teacher, don't answer the question, answer the student. Find out what's really bothering them. That's in the good way, the same thing in the bad way. If someone's asking a question, it doesn't matter how objectionable the question might seem to you. If they're looking for truth, give them the answer. But if they're looking to make trouble and to find an excuse to do something disgusting and terrible and immoral, in the language of the Sikh, to, uh, to kosherize the Midianite woman, even if the argument is a very brilliant Torah argument, don't answer. You're not going to get anywhere. Um, This becomes, this becomes because there's two verses in Proverbs. One verse says, answer the fool, even as his foolishness is there. And the other is, don't answer the fool according to his foolishness. And the question is where? Depends what the intention is. If the intention is not good, don't bother answering. Then the Rebbe puts in a personal lesson from this as well. That each of us has a foolish, sinful king, the Yetzirah. He comes with arguments. And he tries to convince us to be lenient and to drop the mitzvahs and God forbid whatever it is and do something stupid. He's our own inner Zimri. See, the Rebbe always turns the Torah around to us, to ourselves, not to look, Zimri's a bad guy. Do I have a voice of Zimri in me? And we tend to want to answer. Zimri's a scholar. The Yetzirah comes in arguments. Like this, like that. Don't even answer. Even though the Yetzirah is giving arguments, He's just looking to distract you. He doesn't really care about the truth. And even though he's giving all these kind of debates and these seemingly insightful arguments, do not even pay attention. As the Rebbe famously told people who would complain that they have a struggle with the Yetzirah, with different issues in life. And they would come and say that the Yetzirah is, is really bothering them. He seems to be convincing, tempting, and whatever, what have you, which often others might tell the person well, here's what you should tell him. He wants you to do this. Tell him this is wrong. He wants you to do that. Tell him why that's wrong. And the Rebbe's approach was always to ignore the Yetzirah. Move on. Don't even respond. As described in Tanya, if somebody's trying to pray and a bad guy is interrupting him, don't even respond. That's the best way to, um, to, 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 to ignore him, to let him know that he doesn't even count. And that is the lesson the Rebbe takes from this Sikha. The Rebbe concludes this Sikha with a small section, it's a little enigmatic, 
or mysterious. And here's what I think the Rebbe is saying here. That this portion always comes close to your base Thomas. Time of the redemption of the previous Rebbe who had Torah Messias Nefesh. You might say very much like Pinchas. He had Messias Nefesh sacrifice beyond any reason, any rhyme and reason. Pinchas had no rhyme and reason. Meaning to say, he didn't have the law on his side. If he would go to court, they wouldn't answer. They would tell him, go home. But he went beyond it. And he was jealous for God and did the right thing. And he saved the day and he became a Kohen. You need sometimes to save the day from such evil and such immorality, such sin. You need Pinchas, someone who is going on, his, he could have got killed by the whole tribe of Shimon. It was a mob scene. But also the halach itself was not an actual ruling. He didn't ask questions. He did what he had to do. Total sacrifice. Similarly, the previous rabbi, he gave his life, he risked his life, and we know he was, he, was, he was on death row, if you will. I mean, for what? Not for the three capital sins, but to teach Torah to children, to build a mikveh, all these kind of things. This is way beyond the obligation of a Torah Jew, way beyond even the obligation of, of sacrificing one's life. It's like Pinchas. It has no rhyme or reason. It's just something someone does when their entire life is Torah, where they're totally committed to Hashem beyond anything. And that was the previous Rebbe. Uh, and that's why his liberation matches up with the portion of Pinchas. But the Rebbe says, in between the lines here, there's a striking difference between Pinchas and the previous Rebbe. In Pinchas' case, it wasn't done by the Moses of the generation. Pinchas brought the suggestion and Moses says, you do it. That's interesting. It's curious. Shouldn't this great level of dedication be coming from the Moses, from the original Moshe Rabbeinu, the way in the case of the previous Rebbe, it came from the Moses of this generation, of that generation? Also, in that case, it didn't end happy. Pinchas did what he had to do, but the bottom line is, it was a painful medicine. The previous Rebbe, when he, he writes in the Yom Yom, I believe it's on the Yudbeis Thomas entry, uh, the Rebbe writes that the previous Rebbe said that when he took the leadership from his father, he made a condition with his father when his father told him, I guess, that he will be his uh, successor, that he made a condition with his father that it should be that his leadership should be with kindness and with mercy, which means that everything should be revealed blessings. It should be all with positivity, which is a tremendous thing. It's not always the case uh, that a great Jewish leader can not always have that blessing. And the Rebbe would often quote this and say the previous Rebbe, he's leading us you know, to the end, to the, to the finish line, to Mashiach, which in some places the Talmud discusses that there's gonna be terrible things happening. And the Rebbe said, no, that already happened in the past. And the, the, the birth pangs of Mashiach was, was the second world war. And that the Rebbe would refer to the previous Rebbe as the leader of our generation, which of course by us is the extension is the Rebbe. And it's all going to be with revealed kindness and mercy and all the bad stuff that it's talked about in Talmudic writings about Mashiach, that we already had that. We're going to have all of the prophecies of Mashiach only in a good way. How do we know? Because the leader said the Rebbe, our Nasi, referring to the previous Rebbe, which of who the Rebbe is the extension, said it should be, this was his condition, with chesed and rachman, with kindness and mercy. And the Rebbe in the Sikha is indicating, I'm taking a little bit of license here because that's how I understand what the Sikha is trying to say, that he is the extension of Moshe Rabbeinu. What is Moses? He's a loving shepherd. And therefore his approach, that he wants everything to be in a good and revealed way. And if it was needed at that time for it to be with some bloodshed and negativity, he delegated to Pinchas. Moses couldn't be involved for various reasons. It was done by Pinchas. It was great, but he wasn't the Moses. And in the fact, he solved the problem, but it was a painful resolution. And obviously it had to be there. I was not questioning him in it for a second. 
However, the Rebbe says, in our time, you base Tammuz and good Gimel Tammuz, then the total self-sacrifice of our Nasi, of our Moses, it's not through Pinchas, not through the second in command. It's by Moses himself, the shepherd of the Jewish people. And he pulled through this liberation and he's preparing us for Mashiach, etc., etc., and will lead us to that finish line. And it will all be with kindness and mercy.